Art touches, enhances and connects. It has the power to bring people together, to increase the quality of life for those living in big and small cities, and to bring joy to public and private spaces. Art is nothing else but vertical real estate. So it's a combination of beautification and making it accessible. I'm Simone Wipplinger and a warm welcome to the podcast, the podcast from Patrizia, the leading investment manager and partner in global real assets. In this podcast, we offer you insights on hot topics from the real assets industry, from significant sector trends to key business developments and strategic decisions. Today, we're discussing the work of the PET Art Lab, finding out how the worlds of art and real estate collide. The world is asking for innovation, it's asking for disruptive changes, transformations. That's Tanja Di Brita, Swiss art historian and curator of the Patrizia Art Lab, who joins our conversation alongside graffiti and street art aficionado Thomas Wels, co-CEO of Patrizia. Both of our guests have fascinating relationships with art, so let's start by finding out more about them. First, Tanja explains what the Pet Art Lab is all about. It was founded by the Passion for Art in 1984. And it's a work and research organization for contemporary and urban art, but also for society and a sustainable future. Our vision is really to inspire, connect and ideally enrich or enhance life through art by designing murals or artworks in the public space. Very interesting. But Tanya, before we deep dive into Pet Art Lab, can you tell us a bit more about you or yourself and your career as an art historian and, and of course, about your role in the Pet Art Lab? And so I graduated at the University of Zurich in art history and communication. And I gained various experiences in galleries, auction houses, and then started to take inventory and digitalize small to medium collections. And here at Pet Art Lab, I'm the curator, I lead, consult, but foremost, I try to empower the organization to become this platform or hub that can really enrich cities to make them worth living and just make them more colorful and positive. But Tanya, tell me why this particular attraction to graffiti, street art and urban art? For me, when I discovered it, it was one of the first art movements that just didn't have limits. For me, there are no limits in, in graffiti and street art because it can appear or an artwork can be created everywhere and anytime and you can visit or see it at any time. And It's all completely for free. And also Thomas, uh, as I know, Thomas, you're a bit of a graffiti and street art aficionado. How did you get in touch with art and why does it fascinate you also that kind of art? I think that started at school. So I was always interested in art very early. My parents brought me to museums. That was more the pop art time. The access to urban art, I only got much later than this urban artist movement started. So the start of the movement was in the 80s, I would say. I got access to it only 20 years later. So early 2000 with the first digital camera, 
running around in Zurich in some rundown areas. Can you tell us, Thomas, a bit about the private art collection that you established? I started actually with constructivist art, which is very formal. And uh, in 2005, I thought coming away from photography into collecting the artists you see in the street, it was a very small step. I did very, something at that time, 2005 probably, very uncommon. So I, I, I went to these strange places where you find urban art, uh, so rundown areas. You find the signature, the scribble, and I started research in social media. That was 18 years ago. Instagram didn't exist or just started, but that was the platforms these new artists started to use. Auctions at Artnet. Today, this is all taking over by specialized uh, auctions, but also getting access to the artists. So I know some of the Americans going to their, to their studios. And um, I thought I had the space for these pieces. I liked them living with these pieces of art. And uh, well, now, now the place is not a collection. My place is pretty much overcrowded with modern art, with urban art. How does it feel to live with these pieces? What, what does it make so special? My wife would say uh, I, I live in a mini Louvre um, <laughs> because it's so many pieces. But for, for me, it's walking around through a building, meeting my friends. It's soothing. All, all, all these pieces have a relationship to the artists I, I met either in New York or in Switzerland or places I connect to. So it's different to the formal approach to modern art. It's more completely informal. It's building my own history or Some people take photos. I have urban art from New York because it reminds me of having met artist friends there. And basically, you're always in good company, aren't you? I'm always in good company. <laughs> Now we've been introduced to the Pet Art Lab, let's dig deeper into the connection between art and real estate. Though the relationship between these two worlds might not be instantaneously obvious, the Pet Art Lab showcases just how interconnected they really are. Art is nothing else but vertical real estate. It's about the walls. So it's a combination of beautification and making it accessible. The larger firms, most of them have art collections. This art category is external and internal. So usually many of these companies, um, also in real estate, if you build cities, say, you need to have a budget of 1% to invest to beautify the landscape around the building. So you don't find that in all cities, but more and more often. There's the ugly part, which is just scribbling in rundown places. And there's the arty part, which is a bit more orchestrated, I would say. And we decided to do it internally and externally. So the mural outside, but also the walls, because it's nice, it's beautiful. You can also buy wallpapers, but having access to an artist who did pieces, it's more fun. Now, on a more general level, Tanya, how do you think that urban creativity contributes to the livability of a city? For me, it's really the primary question behind it is what makes a city livable or worth living? It's obviously not the gray and concrete walls, but it's also not just the amount of technology technological progress, for example. Another important pillar is really the culture or artistic 
promotion because in the end um, we are all social human beings and Pet Art Lab wants to emphasize to connect and also to um, exchange about different topics in society and therefore art is a great topic to connect and to have an impact and then this is how also more communication between different communities is created. It's really about this social coexistence of all people in a city that makes it more unique. Like if you go to a cafe, you talk to each other and this is a point of encounter and this should be enhanced by art in the public uh, sphere, in the public space. Thomas, is that also why those modern cities seem to be like the party for urban creativity? Is that is that the, the reason what Tanya just mentioned? Or is there another reason behind uh, urban creativity being particularly to be found in modern cities? I think it's perhaps even the other way around. The creativity usually started in places which were not modern, but they were run down. So typically the redevelopment parts uh, of a city where investors would probably say this is the next place for for gentrification. When I went to Williamsburg in Brooklyn some 20 years ago, this was a dangerous place. Today it's the most expensive places in New York because it's the train is driving in 10 minutes to the Wall Street or to, the, to southern Manhattan. The issue is that urban planning is not really good in integrating all parts of what makes it interesting to live in these places. So if a city is, and, and we saw it in, in, in Zurich, we see it in Los Angeles, when Zurich was rebuilt starting in the 2000s, all the old stuff was just torn down and replaced by architecture for the first 10 years, you would you would have said, this is not the place where I want to live. And actually, the urban planning forgot that people want and have to live there. So what was missing actually was, was color. Uh, Switzerland, and, and, and specifically Zurich, they, they, they loved modern concrete architecture. And what was forgotten that you need a little bit of greenery This is happening with a, with a significant delay. And my view is city planning and urban planning has to improve massively because living in places which are gentrified today, that's much more interesting. Because this combination of keeping the old and the new together, making sure that greenery is around and making sure that boutiques, galleries, cafes and urban artists have a living together, because otherwise every city looks like a shopping mall in, in Hong Kong or in Singapore. So we have to learn that. And some some cities did it better and some uh, cities didn't. Which cities, Thomas, would you say have done a good job? I would say Copenhagen is a pretty good place. Um, Hamburg. Um, London is an interesting one because um, it's, it's side by side. So you can go to Brick Lane, go to cafes, and Brick Lane is changing all the time. The shops are changing all the time. And 10 years ago, Brick Lane, 15 years ago, Brick Lane was a dangerous place. But they didn't destroy the fabric of the past. 
And there is another very uh, good example is in, in uh, Lisbon, for example, they really try to find the balance between um, some places where it's completely up to graffiti and street or to appear. And then they found um, the way to also have really commissioned murals that maybe have been created by more established artists. Because in the end, it's always finding also a balance within the, the local artist, street art or graffiti community. Because not to forget, there is always a local crowd there is, that is already expressing in the urban space. And then when you invite an artist or commission a, a wall, it's obviously something from outside to come in. Therefore, I think it's always about how to make it work for all the parties. And I think no one would object to having color on the wall helps a lot in terms of livability. But on the subject of graffiti, Thomas, we would all not be too happy if someone randomly started tagging our property. How do you approach the issue of art in public spaces? I'm a little bit schizophrenic there. It drives me crazy if it happens to me. And at the same time, I think the way how to avoid that a bit is cleaning up fast is costly, but then the taggers, they're not interested anymore because they want to have that stay. At the same time, if you don't orchestrate that in a city, you actually attract these guys and girls again. So you have to make space available where people have a bit more freedom. Only that way you can control and steer it a bit. You can call it orchestration of urban art. Tanya, can you tell us about the artists that are featured in the Pet Art Lab? And is there like a, I don't know, how, how do you select them? It's about positivity. It's about optimism. It's about bringing color and they really should have this this unique or maybe disruptive signature and we are always seeking to artists that also understand the whole package let's say of pet art lab because it comes with this connection to patricia but also to the patricia foundation so there is also this kind of understanding of this social responsibility that is always part of our project Tanya already mentioned the Patrizia Foundation. This is the charitable arm of the organization that's working to bring educational infrastructure to the places that need it most, ensuring all kids and young adults receive the education they deserve. All the proceeds from the Patrizia Art Lab go to the foundation. So let's learn a bit more about this collaboration. When we collaborate, we really try to bring into action the building communities and sustainable future, which is the vision of Patricia. So it's really bringing together the people, the artists with the children. It's bringing together different communities, maybe from different parts of the world, but also from different social backgrounds, or even bringing together the Patricia employees and artists and talking about how creativity can create better in our normal or business life. It's important also looking from educational point of view to offer 
these children that we collaborate with a different perspective or also a different, let's say, nourishment for their soul or their, their brains that is maybe outside of the context of school or preschool, really to let them just paint around in a workshop and yeah, let them go a bit crazy with paint. And the results have been shown to be really unique as well at this point. And I think it's all, there is also studies that really see um, art as a therapeutical approach to children, but also adults. The common ground, I have talked to many um, street artists, but also to people in general, when they think about their childhood, it's really the community that matters. In the end, it's always the community to carry your path. Thomas, you already mentioned the project in Frankfurt that we did not restrict the artists too much. Why is it so important that we offer places where artists can really go crazy and have almost complete creative freedom. This really goes back into art history. How, how, how did artists um, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century actually make money? They made portraits of traders in, in the Netherlands. They uh, did portraits of the wives and the girlfriends of the traders. There was usually the church, which uh, was the big uh, sponsor of art. But they, all, they always gave guidelines. So the art, the Dutch artist would have done if the artist would not have been dependent on this restriction of, of the sponsor, probably would have looked completely different. So obviously, there, there's also a commercial element. The artists have to live somehow. And we don't. We want to avoid that uh, we end up with a with, with a group of Van Goghs becoming crazy or poor. So it's it's a commercial approach, and we try to do it as with, with as little restrictions as possible, so that the artist can use all the degrees of freedom, all his creativity to produce what he would have produced under normal circumstances as well. Tanya. Is the world ready for art as a service and giving the artist then a lot, let's not say complete freedom, but a lot of freedom? Is the world ready for that? I think the world is asking for it. Like the world is asking for innovation. It's asking for disruptive changes, transformations. And I think in the right way, we need to observe how creativity works. Creativity as such is, is, a, is a, a very transformative force that can change or can enforce change. So I think it's really these collaborations that maybe the artwork itself is just a symbol or just a reminder of that process of creativity. But I think all the challenges in between to, let's say, work out a contract or having the site ready for the artists and all these organizational challenges that often are quite intricate in, in art projects. And I think regarding the, the process of creativity, I think there is a lot of force and therefore the world is asking for it, but sometimes 
unconsciously uh, waiting for something to happen instead of really looking at where transformations or change really happens. And I experienced that through creativity, there is like a really disruptive kind of thinking that can help or enforce, promote change. Thank you to our guests, Thomas Wells and Tanja Di Brita. And thank you all for listening. I'm Simone Wipplinger and you've been listening to the podcast from Patricia. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to head over to our website, patricia.ag, to find out more. Now stay safe and stay healthy and tune in again. Until the next time. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.